It's basically narrative. And so what we have to do is we build a story based on some text that we have. And we want to bring out the biblical truths, but a lot of the story is inferred. Right? We're going to look at two characters tonight. One of the characters has got loads of text um, around him. And so we, we don't really have to make up much of the story. We just got to read scripture. The other guy we're going to be looking at, there's one or two, maybe three verses that speak about him and what he said and how he's involved in the Easter story. And so almost all of his story is made up tonight, right? So we're not preaching heresy. Um, don't email me and tell me that it's not biblical, all right? What is scriptural will come up on the screens and I'll point that out to you. But just so that you know, that's, that's what's happening tonight okay so the first person through whose eyes we're going to be looking at easter this evening we meet quite early one morning right in fact very early one morning shortly after jesus had been arrested in the garden of gethsemane he'd been taken to the jewish high priest which is totally out of order completely unjust and he goes no not yet right he goes and uh <clears throat> and he gets tried by this Jewish leadership council. And he gets found guilty of blasphemy. And so they sentence him to death. But the problem was Jewish people were under Roman rule. And so they were not allowed to execute anybody. They needed to get permission in order to carry out an execution. So John 18:28 says this. The Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now... It was early in the morning. Most of us have heard of this Roman governor before. In fact, um, it's, I think most people, even if they haven't read their Bible, have heard about Pontius Pilate. That's how we know him. What you may not know about Pontius Pilate, though, is that he was a man who very much was not liked by the Jews and by his own people. He was a classic, high-powered Roman official who was a lover of money, he loved pleasure, full of arrogance, corrupt to the core, and wanted what he could get for his life to heck with everybody else. One historian describes Pilate as a vindictive and furiously tempered man. Because of this, what he would do was he would often and deliberately cause issues with the Jews. So he would say that he was respecting their ceremonial um, Practices, and then he would go and set up effigies of Caesar all over the place that would offend them. The one time an historian, um, uh, Josephus, recorded the fact that he took money from the Jewish temple court and built an aqueduct. And then when the Jewish people arrived to complain, he set his guards loose on them to beat and kill them indiscriminately. Because of this, Pilate caused a whole bunch of civil unrest. And it started to give the Roman um, headquarters, Caesar himself, the top knobs above him, started to give them a whole bunch of headaches. Right? And so they really didn't like Pilate at all. He was causing problems for them left, right, and center. And so as a result, we can be quite sure that by the time we get to the events we're about to unpack, Pilate was on shaky terms with the emperor. Rome was, Rome was unhappy with the tensions Pilate had caused um, and the civil unrest he had allowed in Judea. And he knew that no matter what, he had to keep the peace at all costs if he wanted to keep his head on his shoulders. So you can imagine when this, when this vicious group of religious leaders show up with Jesus, this wasn't just a rude early morning awakening. This is the very last thing that Pilate wanted to be going through and having to un, um, unpack and deal with on this day. It was a potentially volatile situation. 
He wasn't um, impressed with being woken up early in the morning and with the seriousness of the situation at hand. But here's the thing. Unfortunately, Pilate, he could not get out of this. And so he begins to assess the situation and make a judgment on Jesus. And he starts by asking the Jews, what crime or what accusation are you bringing against him? The first thing they do is they sort of avoid it, right? They sort of avoid answering it. They say, if he were not a criminal, would we not have handed him over to you? That's the equivalent of saying, just trust us, right? Just trust us. This guy is bad news. Let's not even get into trying to prove him guilty. He's guilty. Just take him away, right? However, Pilate is not about to condemn an innocent man, not because he cares for justice or for Jesus, but because for all he knows, condemning Jesus may lead to more of an uproar than freeing him. And he wants to protect his back. It's hard to believe that Pilate was a man who wasn't ignorant or was ignorant about Jesus. And the FBI have got all sorts of case files on you know, the world's most dangerous criminals. It's hard to believe that Rome didn't have some sort of equivalent to the FBI file on Jesus because he was a guy who was gaining popularity. And he was gaining popularity in a whole bunch of stuff that was causing people to get excited about maybe an overthrow of the Roman government. So Caesar, I mean, Pilate might not have known much about Jesus, but it's hard to believe that he was ignorant. And so he doesn't just want to execute Jesus or condemn him, but he's also realized that it's a heck of a tough situation for him to be in because this crowd seemed like they're going to be unhappy if Jesus doesn't get convicted of something. So he presses the crowd a little bit more. He's unhappy with their deference of the question. He says, what has he done? They say to him in Luke 23, 2, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a Messiah, a king. Now, if we just stop there for a moment and consider what Caesar has just been told, Pilate has just been told. He was told that Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah, a fulfillment of ancient Jewish prophecy the promised one who God would send to save his people. Just a week earlier, Pilate can recall seeing Jesus coming into town on a donkey and and people bowing down to him and worshiping him and reciting from the Psalms, bringing glory to him and saying, this is the one we've hoped for. This is the king. The king who is going to come and set his people free from their oppression, from Roman oppression. The Jews were always talking about a Messiah. Pilate thinks to himself, always complaining about the way they were treated. If Jesus really was who he claimed to be, then Pilate, I'm sure, was interested to know because if Jesus was, he would have had him executed right there and then. Not really to protect Rome, but to protect himself because if Jesus was who he says he was and he was coming to cause an insurrection and overthrow and revolution, Pilate himself would have been overthrown by default. And so he wants to take Jesus aside and make sure that he isn't this person, or if he is, have him executed straight away. So Pilate takes Jesus aside and starts to question him, but for our story, the scene curtains drop and we change scenes. Right? So we leave Jesus and Pilate there. Pilate ushers him away into his palace to go and question him. Scene change. Right? In our story, we head back a couple of months. We're going to get introduced to our second guy. Our second character meets Jesus for the first time way before the situation with Jesus and Pilate is unfolding. And in a lot of ways, he's totally and typically like Pilate, but also completely different. And that will become clear a little bit later. 
The truth about this guy is we don't really know much about him at all, not even his name. Scripture doesn't give that to us. We only have a few verses that tell us about him. Therefore, like I said, most of this story is made up. What we can assume with confidence, though, is that he more than likely lived in the Judean hillsides in caves. He probably lived very close to the road that led from Jerusalem to Jericho. We get from God's word that he was a robber. And I don't know if you know the difference between a thief and a robber, right? Um, a thief is someone who will come and steal something without you knowing. A thief is someone like a pickpocket. You don't even know that it's gone. A robber is someone who comes and takes something with force. So like an armed robbery or a hijacking. That's what a robber is. So this guy was a robber. He took stuff from people violently, attacking individuals and groups on the long, um, along the road, stealing their possessions, often leaving them for dead, and sometimes maybe even making sure that they were dead. He was a low life and nobody a criminal. Now for our story's sake, we could imagine that perhaps for the first time, our robber meets Jesus at a party that our robber is invited to in honor of Jesus in Jericho. And this party is arranged by a guy named Zacchaeus, a really well-known but dodgy tax collector. Zacchaeus, being a corrupt guy, maybe bought backhanded stuff or black market stuff from, from our robber for cheap. Didn't really ask questions, but he knew this guy was shady, and so our robber and Zacchaeus had a good partnership together. So our robber's at the party that Zacchaeus is throwing for Jesus, and he witnesses something amazing happen. Zacchaeus' guest, Jesus, somehow seems to have intoxicated Zacchaeus. There's something different about this Jesus character and the way Zacchaeus is responding to him. He seems to have transformed Zacchaeus completely. Our robber's sitting around the table when Zacchaeus cries out, Lord, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. Look, I do this. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore it fourfold. Now, if you knew Zacchaeus, you would know that it would take a miracle of God to change his heart to do something like this because he was a lover of money, didn't love people, could be friendly, but that was only when he wanted to get something from you. And Jesus declares on top of this declaration from Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Our robber is confused, gobsmacked, dumbfounded, struck. He can't begin to comprehend what's just happened, but something about Jesus is just so captivating. Inviting Zacchaeus into eternal life, changing his life, seeing Zacchaeus change. He begins to wonder, could Jesus change my life as well? See, Robert's not happy with his life. He's been really carrying burden after burden, hatred and anger from abuse from when he was younger. Not loving his lifestyle, but really getting just so sucked up into it, nothing else could do. He wants to go and speak to Jesus, but just can't bring himself to do it. And so time comes for him to leave the party, and as he heads towards the door, Jesus approaches him and catches him and grabs his hand to shake it. Jesus introduces himself and looks him straight in the eyes. And if you've met Jesus, you will know and can relate to this sort of. Jesus looked at him and it was as if Jesus could see straight into his heart. For Robert, it felt like an eternity. Jesus could see every sin, every crime, every dark place in his heart. 
And yet despite that, Jesus smiles at our robber and says, you know, hey, there's forgiveness in my kingdom as well. If you would just accept it, how about it? Our robber stands there speechless. His heart's racing. He wants to say yes. But guilt and condemnation and fear grip him and he drops his eyes away. He manages to mumble something non-committal and then walks away out the door. He really wishes he had turned back and said yes to Jesus. Because two weeks later, our robber is arrested and caught by a Roman army patrol. Him and his buddy, as they were getting up to nonsense and self skullduggery as they were trying to rob somebody, they get caught by the Roman guards and they get chucked into prison. And both of them, our robber and his friend, are sentenced to death via execution. And that's where we leave them. Right? Scene drop, scene change. We head back to Jesus and Pilate. So fast forward. So Pilate takes Jesus inside, away from the crowd to question him about this king of the Jews thing. Pilate says to him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answers him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? See, what Jesus is doing here is he is probing Pilate. He's saying, Pilate, are you asking this because you're concerned about who I really am? Is there genuine interest from your side in who I am? Or are you just asking me this because people told you to ask me this? And I can imagine that for Jesus, had Pilate said, yes, I'm very interested, he would have launched into something completely different. But Pilate, you'll see, shuts it down. Pilate answers him and says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered me to you. What have you done? See, Pilate wasn't really interested in what Jesus had to offer. Jesus was just a burden. He wanted to get rid of him. He wanted to understand why the Jews were so upset and whether Jesus really was the king of the Jews come to cause a revolution or start a revolution. Jesus, knowing the heart of Pilate, says, Listen, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have fought so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to Pilate is just relax. I'm not here to start a fight. I'm not here to overthrow Caesar. My kingdom's not of this place. What's more concerning to me is your heart and whether you're willing to accept me. Pilate said to him, therefore, so you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? This for me is one of the most ironic passages of Scripture ever. Here's a man, Pilate, who's probably presided over many judicial um, um, instances and, and situations in court where he's had to make a decision on who's right and who's not. He's sought truth his whole life, but it seems to have eluded him. He's become disillusioned and cynical. Pilate says, what is truth? But he's looking truth in the eyes. He's looking eternal life in the eyes. He's looking his salvation in the eyes. And he walks away and says, what is truth? Despite his cynical response, though, Jesus' confession and declarations has sort of appeased Pilate's mind. Right? In the sense that he now knows Jesus is not here to overthrow the Roman government. And so whew, he's going to get to keep his job. Jesus is not such a bad guy. Now, so he goes out and he tells the mob that he finds no fault with Jesus. But can you imagine what happens then as he tells them? 
The crowd began fuming and frothing at the mouth, insisting that Pilate find Jesus guilty of something. When he asks, why don't you deal with him? They say, but we have no right to execute him. And this is the first time Pilate gets insight into how serious these guys are. For the first time, he realizes they've made a judgment on what needs to happen to him without even being able to articulate what his crime was. See, they've come with a preconceived idea that Pilate needs to sentence Jesus to death via execution. For Pilate, this begins with just, oh, I'm going to find this man guilty, chuck him into jail or not. They're like, no, we don't just want you to find him guilty of something. We want you to kill him. That's why they brought him to Pilate, because only he could issue that command. Pilate realizes that these guys are not just going to be pushed away. And so he finds himself stuck between a rock and a hard place. And at this point, at this point, Pilate has enough information to go, right, maybe it's just worth giving him over and executing him so that I'm rid of him and I just get on with my life. I don't want to cause civic unrest again. I certainly don't want the emperor to find out that I've caused more issues. And so let's just kill Jesus. At this point, at this exact point, Pilate's wife intervenes and she causes headaches for him in a way that I maybe don't think most, much of us r- realize. I, for me, when I was reading this, I'd read this before, but I, but I couldn't remember this part. She sends him a message, right? And she says to him, have nothing to do with that just man. Some translations say innocent man. Have nothing to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So just at a time when Pilate was probably maybe considering crucifying Jesus, his wife sends him a message and says, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. Pilate's already felt like Jesus was innocent. He might have been flirting with the idea of letting him go, but probably crucify him just to get him off of his hands. And his wife sends a message and says, don't do it. This man is innocent. I've suffered enough because of a dream I had about him. And for Pilate, this is like out of the pot into the fire and stuck between two hard rocks. The Romans, despite what you may have believed, were incredibly spiritual people. They believed in the spiritual realm, life after death. They believed in a myriad of different gods and spirits, and even sometimes thinking that Caesars were reincarnated gods or would in themselves become gods. And so they had a high view of the afterlife, although it was maybe quite confused. This warning from his wife then does not do any good for Pilate's situation as it starts to deteriorate. Perhaps he thinks to himself, Jesus isn't a king, but maybe he's someone supernatural. Maybe there's something a little bit different about Jesus, and it would be dangerous to be implicit in his murder. And so now I just want to let him go. It seems more dangerous for me to kill this guy and to give him to the crowd than it is to set him free. And so Pilate at this point has a bit of a brainwave. He thinks maybe the Jewish people will settle for a victory in principle. So I'm going to find Jesus guilty, and then I'm going to set him free, as is customary at that time. So what happened was, every Passover, uh, Pilate would come and he would say, look, there's a prisoner that I have captive, you choose a prisoner, and I'll set him free. So to appease the crowd, Pilate brings Jesus out, and essentially says, look, I find this man to be free of sin or free of guilt, but I'm going to accuse him anyway. I'm going to make him a prisoner, and then I'm going to give you the opportunity to accept him back. So you win because he's guilty, and I win because I don't have to kill him. 
Pilate horribly underestimated the scheming and the planning that went on. Because although this was a foregone conclusion in his mind that they would just accept this thing, they don't accept it. This is what they say to him. They say, away with this man. Release to us Barabbas. Scripture says Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Some people think that Pilate gave them a choice. Either this guy or this guy. A lot of theologians that I read just go, that's not what happened. He wanted Jesus set free. Pilate wanted Jesus set free. He didn't want the the 50-50 chance that Barabbas would be released to them. The crowd is the one who's come planned knowing that maybe he would do this and they go, no, send Jesus away. We want Barabbas freed. This is the last person Pilate wants out of prison because he's a known zealot, someone who was caught up in an insurrection and someone who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Wanting to release Jesus, it says, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? You can feel Pilate's tension, right? His nervousness, his frustration, the fear. They are forcing my hand here. I'm going to have to say yes to crucifying him, but I feel like he's innocent. He doesn't deserve that. And so what are the consequences going to be for me spiritually? I don't even want to think about it. But I also don't want to not appease this crowd because then it's going to go back to the Roman headquarters and I'm going to lose my life. He says, I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, and well done, Pilate, for copping out here. I'm just going to have him punished really badly, and maybe that would appease him. And so my cowardice has led me to punish Jesus even more. So Pilate took Jesus away and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple. And went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, the king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. But I had him beaten and whipped anyway. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Now, Interesting, I looked into this and it seems like a very simple phrase, here is the man. But there is a scripture in Zechariah, and I haven't got it up here, but there's a prophetic promise about the coming of the Messiah. And God says, in scripture it says, or Zechariah is prophesying, he says, here is the man who is the branch. And it's a prophetic utterance about the coming of the Messiah. And so inadvertently, Pilate presents to this crowd Jesus under a messianic title. Which obviously doesn't go well. Right? So he brings Jesus out and he says, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests, who were scholars of the word, they would have known that prophecy. As soon as they hear this, as soon as they saw Jesus, they shouted even louder, Crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate answered, you take him then and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. This man must die according to it. He claimed to be the son of God. Now they give him even more stuff that he never had before. Before he just claimed to be a king. Now he's claiming to be the son of God. Scripture says, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. 
and went back inside. Because it's one thing to king to kill some king from some world, some place. Might have thought Jesus was a little bit crazy. It's another thing to kill a guy calling himself the son of God. You can imagine in Pilate's mind all the different gods that he believed they were out there. What happens if this was a son of a God? So he takes Jesus back inside. Where did you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus doesn't answer him. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? This is so typical of a bully. When they are scared, their best form of defense is attack. They puff themselves up and try and lord it over people. Look at how powerful I am. Do what I'm telling you to do because I can take life away from you. Jesus answers him with words that would have probably shocked and scared the living daylights out of Pilate because before Pilate is standing a man who's been bloodied and bruised, beaten and whipped and torn to pieces beyond recognition, God's word says. So you can imagine the pain and the humility Jesus has already gone through and yet still he has the dignity and the power and the courage to stand up in front of Pilate and say, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. This doesn't mean Jesus was setting Pilate free or giving him an off-the-hook situation here. Pilate would have probably known by this time that Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus and handed him over for 30 pieces of silver, and he would have probably found out that Judas later on that day took his life. Jesus is saying, the guy who handed me over to you, he's guilty of a greater sin and he took his life. It doesn't mean you're not guilty of a sin. It's still going to be bad, but the one who handed me over is greater. And so what he's saying to Pilate here is, you're going to be accountable for what you do here. One choice before you is God, the other one is sinful. Jesus answered, you would have no power over him. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But how do I avoid having to kill this guy who I'm so convicted by and so terrified of, but how do I also like, get away with not making the crowd angry? But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat in a place known as the stone pavement. It was the day of preparation for the Passover and it was about noon. So time is running out here. If Pilate's going to make this call, he's got to make it now because you had to crucify someone before the sun went down. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And so through the eyes of Pilate, you can imagine there's now no other option for him because his love of the world and of his position of power far outweighed his fear of God. His fear of man far outweighed his fear of God. His desire to make inquiry into who Jesus was and the life he might have offered fades away. And he hands Jesus over be crucified. It says, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Curtain drops and we move to our last scene of the story tonight. We catch up with Jesus, who meets our robber again on the road to Golgotha, carrying their crosses. It's hot. It's dusty. There are large crowds gathered around the roads to witness these condemned men walking up where they're going to be executed. The crowd's hostile. They're spitting and beating and mocking. 
the three condemned men as they passed by. They were relentless in their accusations and their abuse. Jesus, our robber can see, is far worse off than the two other robbers there, himself and his mate. He can see that Jesus is battling. He's struggling as it is, and there's nothing wrong with him physically. Jesus is torn to pieces, but he can just make out that it's him. A robber looks across at Jesus a couple of times, who's just a few meters away from him, and cannot help feel a little bit confused. Is this really the Jesus that I met at Zacchaeus' house? Who, who seemed to have changed Zacchaeus' life, but now himself can't save himself. He's, he's a man who promised me eternal life, and Zacchaeus seems to have got it, but he's about to die. A robber feels a little bit saddened as well, because despite what's happening, he knows something happened in his heart with Jesus. Jesus is a good guy. He is innocent. He saw the love in his eyes. He felt his tender touch. He knew the power of God, although he rejected it and walked away the first time. He's saddened by what's happening. He's angry with the crowd. A robber is spitting back at the crowd and throwing curses back at them. But yet he sees Jesus suffer in a different way. There's still something about Jesus on the road to Golgotha that pierces deep into the robber's heart. The way he responds or doesn't respond to the crowd around him. A robber wants to cry, leave him alone, but he can't because he's exhausted and he's tired. Finally, the men, all three of them arrive at Golgotha and are crucified to their crosses and are lifted up. And it was no ordinary crucifixion because there's a massive mob of people around them. All come to see Jesus. Most of them were from the Jewish religious community, self-righteous, finger-pointing, mocking Jesus, still going on. But amidst the pain and the suffering, there's a group of people. Scripture says this, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his sister, as well as Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, sorry, Mary, the wife of, of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and Jesus' mother, Mary. When Jesus saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, which was, John the, which was John, the disciple John, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. Our robber sees this. He hears the words of Jesus. And he thinks to himself, How is it possible that a man can be suffering so much and yet still care for his mother and still care for the ones he loves? Still offer tender words of encouragement and direction. There must be something more to Jesus. He must be doing something here that people don't understand. Surely this is the one. What's more, the crowd continue to mock and spit, accuse him, baying for more blood, baying for the death of Jesus. And Jesus prays this prayer, and our Robbie hears it. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In that moment, our robber is convinced. He flashes back to the time he met Jesus at Zacchaeus' party and he remembers the love in Jesus' eyes, the new life he promises, and it becomes real for him. He still feels the same sense of condemnation and guilt and shame, but he's determined that this time, in his dying moments, he's not turning back. He's going to take a chance on Jesus and he's going to ask Jesus and he's going to take him up on his promised eternal life. The robber hears the mocking crowd after he comes to this decision and he cries out, Don't you fear God? Speaking to the other robber as well, he's joined in the mocking. You are under the same sentence. 
We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. The crowd continue to laugh and mock, but our Robert turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, I was there in Jericho. I met you at that party at Zacchaeus' house. Do you remember? And Jesus nods his head and says, yes. He says, I've never forgotten your words to me. I wanted to say yes, but I just couldn't. But now, if it's not too late, Scripture says our Robert cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it's then that our robber hears the most beautiful words he could ever have heard, heard from anybody. Through, bloodied, through a bloodied and dry mouth, Jesus, barely able to breathe and speak, says to him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last breath. Shortly after that, so too did our robber, who for the last few minutes of his life had hope beyond the grave. For the last few minutes of his life, he was finally, truly free and felt like it was good to be loved by God. He felt for the first time what true forgiveness was like. For the last minutes of his life, he got a taste of the reality of eternity in the kingdom with God. He was able to look forward and give thanks to Jesus. Pilate was a different story, however. Pilate was a guy who had ample opportunity with Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus tried to show him who he was. Pilate could have made the decision to inquire about Jesus and be set free from his pain. He was a man who needed Jesus probably even more than this robber did. But his fear of man... And his cynical behavior and attitude and heart turned him away. Later on in Pilate's life, historians record the fact that he was fired and he was exiled. And he also took his life. Because remember for Pilate, the Easter story didn't end after he had given Jesus over to be crucified. Remember, he still had to deal with the fact that Jesus rose again. The man that he had given over to be crucified, that he had denied he still has to deal with the fact that there's a body missing and people can't explain it. His Roman soldiers can't explain it. They've run away and disappeared. Pilate probably suffered with the same thing Judas did, an overwhelming guilt, the fact that they had denied the living God. For those of us who know and love Jesus, we'll never get to meet Pilate, right? We'll never get to ask him why he made the decisions he did. That's a matter between him and the Lord. But one thing's for sure, he's now no longer confused about the kingship and the sovereignty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. But for our robber, the man known only to us as a robber, for those of us who know Jesus, we'll get to meet him one day. Perhaps even get to know his real earthly story. One thing's for sure though, we know that he was a broken man, desperate of the touch from Jesus an outcast, a criminal, an undeserving man. Yet when Jesus intersected his life, when he was confronted with the truth of Jesus, he decides to say yes to Jesus and his life is changed just like that. Just like that. And people go, well, how is that even fair? He spent his whole life a criminal and on the cross he gives his life. I'm going to say, guys, that is why grace is scandalous. That's why it is so beautiful because our God is just that good. None of us are deserving. All of us need death. 
But Jesus in his grace comes and dies for us and the robber gets to taste the glory of the work of Jesus. The key question for us tonight, I'm going to end with this question. Whose eyes do you see Easter through? Whose eyes? Are you someone who's come over and over and over again face to face with the truth of God and His love for you and your sinfulness and your need for redemption, but over and over and over again, you're cynical and you back away and you reject it. Have you hardened your heart? I want to say to you that there's opportunity in the kingdom to keep coming back to Jesus as long as there is life in you. Or are you someone who's like the robber and you're ready, you're just going, Jesus, tonight is the night. Tonight is the night. There is freedom for you in the kingdom. There is forgiveness for you. There is eternal life for you in Jesus. And I would rather have the attitude of the robber than of Pilate, no matter what he had in this world. Don't let your fear of men overcome your fear of God. And don't let your desire for comfort in this world to rob you of comfort for eternity in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And this is how I feel like we need to respond tonight. We're going to go into a time of worship. If you want to come and give your life to Jesus for the first time, you're like, this is it. Today's the day. I really feel like there's an openness in this place to do that. So I'm going to be up front. How it will be up front. We want to be able to pray with you and do that. I want to ask that you come and speak to us during worship. As a, as a response of worship to God, come and lay your life down at His feet. Maybe there's a place where you want to recommit, rededicate your life to God. Come and ask for forgiveness and lay it at the foot of the cross where the work was done. And come and do that tonight in worship. Let's worship authentically. Today is the day we get to celebrate the resurrection of our King, which means that we have hope for life after this. The robber got to experience that. We get to experience that. And that's the beauty of the kingdom. So, Father, I just want to thank you for your work. I want to thank you for your love. And I want to ask in Jesus' name that if there's anybody in this place, Holy Spirit, who's on the edge, why don't you just give them the boldness and the courage to respond to you tonight in freedom and in truth? Why don't you deal with them tenderly, Lord, with compassion and love and with grace like you did with that robber on the cross. God, we don't know his full story, but we know that he's a man who saw in you freedom and life. In Jesus' name.